In this interview, I'm once again joined by Amoda Ma, spiritual teacher and author of books such as Embodied Enlightenment and Falling Open in a World Falling Apart. Amoda Ma shares her experience of falling into the abyss of emptiness and the consequences that followed. She describes the dark night of the soul that preceded this experience and how its aftermath healed her childhood abandonment trauma. Amoda Ma also talks about the life of a spiritual teacher, how she went from living an ascetic life of anonymity in the English countryside to moving to America to become a well-known teacher, and shares her observations of a boys' club dynamic in the spiritual teaching scene. Amoda Ma also recounts relearning relationship after her enlightenment when she met her now husband and discusses the feminine frequency of awakening and how that relates to the inner marriage. So without further ado, Amoda Ma. Amoda Ma, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Steve. Um, it's lovely to be back. Yeah, I'm very happy to be uh, speaking with you again, Amoda Ma. In our last episode, we ended on something of a cliffhanger and we set the scene for some threads to pick up in this sequel. We ended on the abyss moment, falling into the abyss. So I'm wondering if you could pick the story up from that point. Perhaps you could uh, set the scene and situate us. And, and what happens next? Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I'm not sure quite how uh, deeply we went into the abyss. So maybe I should say a little bit more about that. Um, <clears throat> uh, really, after many years of... Uh, spiritual seeking and spiritual practices and after my experience in India um, I sort of uh, gave myself to the path of surrender to life that's what India taught me noticing in myself where there was resistance um, and really just naturally being where I am without any avoidance, um, you know, in my internal landscape. And, and so when, when there was this period of solitude after the breakup of my relationship, after about a year or a year and a half, maybe two years, and I was a solitary person anyway, um, that's when the abyss of emptiness, yeah, so it revealed itself. And it was, it was, it was just in, in, that, in that deep solitude, in that deep aloneness. And in the surrender, because that was my, my way at that point, I, I fell into that abyss it, and it felt like a death. I'm not quite sure if we touched on this last time, but that death was a psychological death. And it was uh, a vast unbounded emptiness and uh, a disappearance of the psychological structure of self. And miraculously, it was also emerging into the fullness of life. Now, after that, 
I noticed that my, if you like, relationship with life, which was no longer really a relationship, it was just, it was almost, it was as if I was, I was life itself or life. Yeah, there was no separation, but I noticed that everything was fundamentally different, I guess, because the, the self that had been there as a victim of life, yeah, as a, as an observer of life, as an experiencer of life, was no longer there. And so everything was fundamentally different and yet absolutely the same <laughs> life went on. What happened after that? Well, life carried on, but my, um, it was like I was living from the unknown. Nothing was known anymore. There was nothing that I could stand on. There was nothing um, uh, that I could, uh, it's like the whole psychological structure of good, bad, welcome, unwelcome, uh, all inner division fell away. And so the fullness that was experienced, as well as the emptiness that was experienced, was 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 profoundly different to you know from from the previous you know anything prior to that. And yet life carried on as an ordinary life. Um, no, I I didn't because I wasn't actually seeking enlightenment or awakening. And this happened almost as an organic and yet very unexpected um, part of my journey, my, my life. Um, I didn't have a voice or a self that said, ah, I'm enlightened or even I'm awakened. There was just nothing there to report back on the experience. There was just this constant, almost naked innocence. And so it went on for a number of years. Occasionally it would like occur to me, oh, oh, I, 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 think, I think this is what they call enlightenment. But that would pass very quickly. And so life just went on. Um, that, I, I, that's when I wrote my books, my first books, um, which I don't think in retrospect really expressed the, 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 the subtleties or the freshness of this experience. I was still sort of almost observing it and writing about it from that uh, sort of wider um, perception um it wasn't it wasn't a totally direct expression <laughs> um although you know it had a fragrance of it um i'm not sure what else to say about this period of time um it was like being uh, a newborn <laughs> experiencing uh life totally anew but there was it wasn't it wasn't a, a, a high it wasn't a, a bliss state um, although there was a, a fundamental peace and spaciousness in it 
I think it was quite a few years later that the the term and the concept and the understanding of non-duality came in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, there were just several years of just ordinary life, but all of it, you know, even the unwelcome parts, like I still had a turbulent relationship with my mother. Um, that was really the the only kind of uh, sticky place um, that remained. I mean, I still didn't have any money. I still didn't know what I was doing, even though I'd written my book. It, you know, I was nobody, so it 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 didn't really have an audience, although it was well received over the years. Um, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I wasn't looking for something to do. It just wasn't, you know, I was, I was kind of just allowing a deeper impulse to emerge if it was going to emerge. And that took a number of years. And I think that during that time, I would say that was a ripening process. It was an embodiment process. Um, I didn't know again, about embodiment. I just was living my life. But I think that what happened was that this unbounded seeing, it's like the veils had dropped, all the veils of uh, identity and narrative and uh, division, yeah, had fallen away. And that started to filter into every aspect of my life and the the turbulence with my mother was highlighted it's as if what had kept it suppressed finally wasn't there anymore so it was very raw and uh, uh, part of the purification process um, but even that was met with uh, a kind of nakedness exactly that it wasn't suppressed anymore I wasn't you know that there was turbulence and it was very challenging and it was very painful and um, we did battle at times but it's like the battle had come right to the surface it was no longer down there so everything everything came into view um, and was allowed was welcomed um, it was it was it was really a profound yes to everything there was nothing that was separate from life there was nothing that was separate from godness which is how i described it at the time um, it was the totality was absolutely as it is and there was nothing in me that was rejecting it um and like I say, that took a number of years to really filter in. And uh, it was about maybe, it was actually 12 years later <laughs> that I was able, well, not able, but willing to start speaking from that. <laughs> Very fascinating. Um, might I ask you a couple of questions about it? Of course. You described that period as a sort of dark night of the soul and a barren landscape 
And then there was a, I'm not clear if it was a moment or a, or another, another period of moments where you, you say you consciously surrendered to the desolation of non-existence. That's how you put it. Consciously surrender to the desolation of non-existence. And that's when something changed. I'm quoting you now. So I'm curious about that. Was there a kind of moment where this abyss barren landscape period broke open into something new? Was it an epiphany moment or was it some sort of this uh, conscious surrendering to the desolation of non-existence? Was this some sort of gradual process? And what happened to the abyss? Did it ever go away? Is it still there? Okay, so you're you're referring actually to the period... um, that led up to awakening, not not the following period that I'm describing, which had a certain barrenness on a material level, but not on a <laughs> on an inner inner level. Yeah, yeah right. Yeah. I'd like I'd like to ask a little bit about just that moment, and then mm-hmm. I have questions about the period you've been describing, which is the okay. post the post, uh, the post period. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, was it a conscious surrender? Yeah. <sighs> The landscape of desolation, which I described as a dark night of the soul, was something that, if you like, crept up on me from the inside over a period of time. I think it's always been there but it finally emerged more viscerally and in view and as a an ongoing landscape for that period of perhaps i think it was around 2 years that i had ended the relationship with my partner husband at the time which was incredibly dramatic on many levels and incredibly difficult to end that relationship because I needed love and it catapulted me into a profound sense of abandonment from love. Now, I, I, do, I did like being on my own. <laughs> I like the solitariness, but I, I still was yearning for the love. And so not only was there an actual uh, human experience of being alone, but because I was alone for, for I mean, two years is not long, and I learned to live my life and, you know, I was fine, (laughs) perfectly capable and self-sufficient of living in the modern world on my own. Um, But it seemed to stretch out into an eternity. That's really an inner sense. And what I was experiencing that was not really an abandonment from being in a relationship or even the old wounds, shall we say, of being abandoned by my father, my mother, my original father. I had done so much work on that. When I was 
sensitive to this inner landscape. It was an abandonment that was not as so much personal, but impersonal. In other words, an abandonment by, I could say God, but I, 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 I hadn't, I didn't have a concept for God then. I was, you know, to me, God was a, a Christian belief um, that had no relevance to me. And I didn't believe in any God out there. So it's not a word that I would use. I use it in retrospect because that's what it felt like an abandonment by existence itself. And that's what opened up the abyss. And this, so, so there's an inner landscape of desolation, of barrenness, a sense of nothing is growing here, it's dead. And it really didn't have to do with my outer circumstances. Although I was, like I say, a solitary, but that it wasn't to do with, uh, I haven't got any money or I haven't got a relation. It wasn't to do with that. It, was, it just really emerged when I, when I was just with myself in the quiet moments but it became all pervasive. I wasn't depressed by any means. Um, I wasn't neurotic. <laughs> um, I, I, there wasn't really even a poor me, although I think underneath it, there was a poor me in the sense of being a victim of existence. I had been abandoned by existence. It felt like an abandonment of the soul it felt like it was never ending. It felt like it was a black hole that would swallow me up. And again, it had nothing to do with depression. I was actually quite buoyant <laughs> and, you know, quite mature, if you like, um, in, in my psychological and spiritual development. It was just such a, a, a subtle inner sense, but profound and I had an in instinct, an, a natural instinct that this that I was experiencing held uh, the key to the nature of suffering, not just my suffering, but suffering. And again, I'm not speaking about circumstantial suffering, <laughs> the things that happen to us or happen in the world on a, on a, on a, material, physical, three-dimensional level, I mean psychological suffering. And somehow conscious surrender a clear desire to discover the nature of suffering and the willingness to meet what is here without any avoidance brought it all to a place unexpectedly and yet maybe there was some some uh, conscious interaction with that, where at some point in that two-year period towards the end of it, I was sitting on my sofa in my living room, and this inner landscape, this abyss, 
grew so huge that I felt as if I was going to get completely lost in it and not lost in a, in an enlightened way but where you lose the self, but just swallowed up by it like a death. And I also recognized in that moment that this was the edge of the abyss that I had always come up against in my early years, in my 20s, which created the thought, I'm going to kill myself. And then perhaps some clumsy attempt at that. And I recognized it. And I also recognized in that moment that the mind wanted to move away from it. And how did it move away from it? It moved away from it. I had two strategies. The primary strategy was to overlay it with a thought about a brighter future, future, some uplifting thought, some uh, maybe spiritual thought, some uh, maybe loving thought, any, any thought other than nakedness, other than no thought. There's nothing wrong with that, yeah? Um, but it seemed harmless, but I noticed it. And it might, that thought would lead me to perhaps pick up a spiritual book that was on my bookshelf and in my aloneness, sit and read it. Well, why not? That's what we do very, uh, yeah, when we're alone, we read, we, yeah. But I just noticed it as a distraction. I noticed it as an archaic mechanism of avoidance and it felt like lifetimes of that unconscious mechanism the other distraction again totally harmless was going to the kitchen to make a cup of tea yeah a very english thing but when you're on your own enjoy a nice cup of tea and reading a book what could be you know wrong with that but again i noticed it as a movement away from true solitude. Now, I was a meditator, so I know how to sit in silence, but this wasn't meditation. This was just my ordinary day. Ah, and this all happened really quickly. It's not like I spent a lot of time pontificating about it or ruminating about it. It happened in a nanosecond. It was like the clear light shone on this moment, and I felt an ancient, primitive mechanism of self. And in that moment, there was conscious surrender, just being here, right here. It's so soft. It's so selfless. It's, yeah, there's no tightness in it. There's no forcing it. It was just like, and it was a, that was it. That, that was the blip. It was experienced as a blip. It wasn't like a great explosion, <laughs> but it was a blip. It's like it went, but it was something happened. And then everything changed. <laughs> Perspective changed. Yeah, everything changed. No, I, I experienced myself as nothing and everything.
and that remained. Yeah, nothing and everything. Nowhere, I couldn't find myself anywhere, and yet I am everywhere. <laughs> what happened to that abyss of existential abandonment after the blip? Gone, vanished. Instantly. Vanished totally, instantly, yes. Yes, instantly. Uh, no abandonment. I never have felt, experienced, uh, thought of a me that is abandoned since that moment. That's what was, that's what was so radically um, different. And I could only see that from that point. I mean, you know, I, I didn't know there was a victim structure before that. You don't see because that's who you are. You, that's who you think you are. <laughs> yeah, the whole personality, the whole personhood is built on that structure. But it was like the main pin that held this uh, uh, psychological structure of self, which is experienced as a separate me, completely got pulled out. So how can I be abandoned from anything? How can I be abandoned by life? How can I be abandoned by God? How can I be abandoned by love? It was seen to be a complete uh, illusion, a, a mara, because I am life. I and life are one. It's inseparable because I am everywhere and I am nowhere. So it's like emptiness and fullness merged into one. <laughs> yeah, so, so everything changed from that point. And what did you notice about how you viewed or related to other people? If I might probe some of the contours of this, of this uh, experience. That's what I'm curious about. The fundamental difference was that everything and everyone is appearing in me, not outside of me. And therefore, there is only one. Now, that doesn't mean that I like everyone or get on with everyone or um uh, let's say falsely nice to everyone or falsely spiritual towards everyone yeah we are seven billion or maybe eight billion now individuations all absolutely unique with different resonances, frequencies, vibrations, levels of unconsciousness or consciousness. I can experience the one beingness out of which we all arise. And in that there is a great acceptance of all individuations. That's it. <laughs> And yet that doesn't mean that I have to be in friendship or, I mean, intimate friendship or relationship with 
everybody. <laughs> That's very interesting. That you're leading to another question I had about boundary function or one's personal boundary function, etc. And you're you're going there already. Um, how have you experienced that aspect of life? But by boundary function here, I don't mean the boundary between self and other. I mean the boundary, sort of saying no to things or no to people or uh, ending of relationships or, you know, uh, that, I mean, the boundary in that sense. Yes. Um, it's a good question because I speak a lot about openness and my whole, my essential teaching as it has become is about openness. And then it gets very confused with this, this boundary thing. Um, so, uh, let's say this paradoxically my boundaries became clearer prior to awakening my boundaries were a mess because I needed love so I couldn't say no I was afraid to say no uh, I was afraid to say no to my father when he was alive I was afraid to say no to my mother in you know when there were certain uh, dramas and requests or beseeching that that, that wasn't healthy uh, I was afraid to say no in my relationships um, with a partner with a husband uh, and so it, everything was a mess um, uh, I, I I was a mouse, <laughs> yeah, afraid to to speak up or to be seen or yeah, and 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 so after awakening, after the the main pin of the victim identity had been pulled out, paradoxically my boundaries were clear, clearer. But those boundaries don't have violence in them. It it's not that anything needed to be defended. Essentially, that which I am is undefended. And, and that's how that is experienced as a nakedness and openness, a freshness. And a, yeah, nothing is defended against. But there is a functional yes and a functional no. For instance, uh, <laughs> a very... <laughs> Uh, small or mundane or ordinary example uh, that comes to mind is that because in my youth there was I'm a woman and reasonably attractive and not having clear boundaries I, I would get many requests for all sorts of interactions either short term or long term it was impossible to say no most of the time. Well, after this, it's very easy, but it doesn't have violence in it. It's a simple no. And that's the same in any interaction, um, any invitation, if you like, because I have no need. There was no more need, no more need for love, no more need for approval, no more need for recognition. And so it just arises very naturally, the yes and the no, from an inner intelligence and not from a defended mind or a defended personhood. And also the experience was and is now that because the frequency field, for want of a better 
word description is one of, uh, let's say it's clear. Yeah. It's not messed up by <laughs> the dynamics of the self. It's not covered over or entangled. I, I don't really get into those situations. The individuals that come into my environment or experience are mostly, I mean, occasionally it might be, but mostly in resonance with this. So there's no conflict. <laughs> yeah. There's no need to go, no, no, no. <laughs> So it does change the nature of relating. Yeah, when you're relating not from need, but relating. Well, you see, there was no need for a relationship after that. I stopped looking for a relationship. One of the first things that I said to myself um, after this blip, yeah, sometime after that, a year or something, two years after that, I, I, I said to myself, well, this is it. There's no more need for another to fulfill me. I'm married to God. Now, you can take that in all sorts of ways, but I didn't mean I was married to God in the conventional sense. It meant the inner marriage had taken place, and therefore there was fulfillment that couldn't be fulfilled by anybody else and therefore no need for that. And when we relate from, from that essential fulfillment, then all relationships change. Because no more contracts, no more strategies. <laughs> now, of course, I am in relationship now, I, yeah. <laughs> and that was a surprise too, yeah. That it's fundamentally, uh, fundamentally different. Can you say something more about that? Uh, it was a surprise. What do you mean by that? And in what way is it fundamentally different? Um, well, again, about two years after this period, after having, you know, like I say, this fulfillment that couldn't be fulfilled or needed to be fulfilled by anybody else. Um, Cavi, who is now my partner, husband, um, He, he, was, he was around. We had been working together when I was teaching my movement work, which had completely come to an end by then anyway. But um, he, 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 I knew him. He, he, he also was married. So it wasn't uh, uh, anybody looking for a relationship. But we, we sort of knew each other a little bit. Um, but about a year or two after, I think a couple of years after this, blip <laughs> um it sort of became obvious that he was appearing as an invitation to embody on an earthly level the love that I am, the fulfill, fulfillment that I am. It, it was just a, a, a knowing. 
And so are a relationship, a, friend, a deep friendship and relationship formed, which really was not based on need. Um, it was, th there is no need in our relationship. Yeah, we, there are no uh, sticky contracts. Um, I, I don't want it to sound like a sort of holier than thou relationship. I'm, I'm just describing how it is from the inner, and Kavi would say the same. Um, we, we we explore this on our on our courses, the, the nature of relationship. But it, it was like there were two silences meeting, as opposed to as opposed to two egos needing each other. It, it, there was no codependency, and yet there is such an intimacy and something, um, it's like something, it's very ordinary, but it's also extraordinary, <laughs> yeah, because none of the push and pull and the, like, the subtle, sometimes not so subtle strategies of um, uh, feeling rejected or uh, needing to overpower or needing to hide or needing to control or needing to seduce or need yet none of that takes place so it's very unsticky it's like two emptinesses meeting and in that emptiness there's a kind of utter fulfillment <laughs> And yeah, it's very human as well. <laughs> you mentioned that the thought, oh, maybe this is what they call enlightenment, would occasionally fleet through your mind, uh, but wouldn't stick. And you talked about thoughts. Did you have thoughts at all? Or... Was it that there were no thoughts or was there just no thinker, but there were thoughts, for example, these are some of the ways it's expressed. Uh, different people express their experiences. I'm wondering if you could say something about your experience of thought after that blip. Mm. It's not that there were no thoughts. There was and continues to be, but at first it's very, you know, palpable more palpable um, a silence that silence isn't to do with having no thoughts that silence was a it was like the baseline it was the foundation it was the silence held everything which means that thought can still arise, and of course it does. It's the nature of mind is to be a producer, a generator of thought. But that thought didn't stick. It didn't stick to the me, because there was no longer a me, that feels bad about something or good about something or wants to get rid of something or wants to hold on to something or wants to move into the future or wants to remember the past. It's like the thought just, it's like a, a wave that just moves through the emptiness, a ripple. 
So thought was experienced as a ripple, but there was nobody here to grasp that thought. So it was almost imperceptible. Now, of course, if there's thought that is focused on something, a task, well, then that's thought. But it's very, um, again, functional. It's doing what it needs to do. Yeah, <laughs> a task. That's, that's kind of intelligent thought. Everything else is like flotsam and jetsam. So there was a quietness. And I would say that still is. It's like... Um, uh, it's like being the sky. Yeah. And sometimes there are clouds and sometimes there aren't. Sometimes there's a wind, a breeze, sometimes there's a storm and sometimes there isn't, but there isn't to me identifying with those thoughts. So again, that's kind of fundamentally different, but of mm. course we interact with uh, the three dimensional world. We interact on the level of, you know, individuations and things, manifestations. So thought arises in response to that. But th thought and narrative are different. <laughs> Narratives don't arrive, uh, arise. Narratives are interpretations of our experience. But thought can arise without interpretation. I have two more questions actually about this um, post blip about st state or way of being or experience. The first of which is, did you receive any reflection from others who knew you before and after that there was any kind of change in you? Did anyone remark on anything or was it an entirely inner revolution? I didn't know anyone. I didn't have any friends. I didn't socialize. <laughs> I mean, really. Um, the I guess the I guess Cavi would remark, yeah, Cavi, my partner husband, would remark on certain aspects of it not from the place of having a commentary about enlightenment, but he experienced something very different in, in his relationship to me. Uh, I'm probably not the best person to describe his experience or his report, but I'll, I'll try because he's spoken about it many times. He would say it was like he was having a relationship with a clear mirror. Now, I didn't talk about my, I mean, I did tell him about my experience, but I didn't say, hey, look, I've awakened and I've got some teachings to give you. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. That just wasn't my inclination. And anyway, I didn't have any teachings uh, or any, you know, spiritual, you know, one-upmanship, not at all. Um, but he felt that whenever he put out any, what he called the, the tentacles, yeah, that happen in relationship, which are based on need, yeah, subtle control or, yeah, something, um, 
whenever he or you know the need for something love or yeah whenever he put that out whereas in a, a in other relationships and in most relationships they would stick somewhere that's where we dovetail in relationship that's what creates a codependent relationship it also creates the glue in relationship for better or for worse yeah whenever he put that out it was as if it had nothing to land on so it would just go and actually that was part of his uh, more gradual awakening where those tendencies just dissipated over time not because I opposed them or, or, or told him about them and said, hey, look, you're doing this. Absolutely not. It's just that there was nothing for them to stick on. Absolutely nothing. It was just this open space that is love, which is the deepest acceptance. And so um, he noticed that something was different, but there wasn't really anybody else around that knew me before or after. Hmm. Very interesting. And then the, my last question on on this uh, topic. Sometimes I've heard people make distinctions between after an experience like that, there's two categories of effect, one of which is lasting and the other of which is, is uh, more temporary. So some people will say, well, I was in this state of bliss and deep acceptance. And then eventually the bliss sort of attenuated it, but the deep acceptance has remained something like this. I'm wondering if you also experienced two categories of effect after this blip, something lasting and something temporary, or perhaps that's not the right way to ask. Let me just reflect on that so I can be as accurate as possible because, you know, I'm always having to look back, yeah, to, to, yeah, to see, to see what that, what happened. Um, No, I don't think there was a temporary and a abiding. It was all abiding. Uh, I didn't experience bliss. Bliss comes and goes. What I what happened was that over time, and again, this is the twelve year period. a profound goodness in what is came more and more to the forefront. So rather than it being temporary, it came more into the forefront. What had, what was experienced or known after the blip was as well as I am life, you know, I and life are one, I am love, I am inseparable, I am that. That was the initial mm -hmm, realization or recognition and visceral sense. Um, but what 
was the the ongoing unchanging yeah the abidance was presence not i am being present but presence is all there is there can't be anything else and in that nothing is avoided nothing is rejected there are no cover-ups there are no yeah interpretations that that separate me from this and that remained all the way through now we can call that peace but it's not that my life was always peaceful i had all sorts of financial issues housing issues mother issues but this this abiding presence was always here and eventually after several years that was experienced as an essential goodness in what is now this has been abiding this has never changed there wasn't a high <laughs> there wasn't a bliss maybe that is bliss maybe that's a subtle current of bliss but it it wasn't experienced in that way or interpret you know named in that way that's not how i experienced it it was just this nothing was changing and yet life was always changing this and i came to know that as the fundamental nature of i not me but i and that just has remained <laughs> well thank you for uh, describing that in, in such detail um you know you mentioned this 12 year period and it's bookended in in some ways by your two publishing phases we were just mentioning this we're discussing this briefly before we started recording that your early books, How to Find God in Everything, which you later revised um, and republished as Radical Awakening some years later, and then uh, Change Your Life, Change Your World, part of this early post-blip period. And then there's a big gap. And then your books like Embodied Enlightenment and Falling Open in a World Falling Apart came in the second publishing phase. So I'm really interested, actually, ab about that. Uh, gap and what changed and what motivated you to publish those first two books and what inspired the second um, mm -hmm. phase uh, but also there's something you've said about that first phase which was that publishing your first book you've said brought your personality patterns back uh, which you worked through that's a quote from an interview you, you you conducted some years ago so I'm curious about that so can you talk perhaps a little about this first publishing period and then what led to this big gap? And then why, why the second period? I wrote How to Find God in Everything. Yes, not long after that initial blip, although it was a few years. Yeah, it was, I don't know, three, four years. Because... In some ways, I'm essentially a writer. <laughs> I've always written things. I've written articles. I write, obviously I wrote in my academic years. I wrote for many 
mainstream uh, publications. Um, and I seem to have a natural capacity for expressing in the written word. In those days, I couldn't express at all in the spoken word. But in the written word, I could express and write very clearly and coherently with good structure and grammar and all of that, which helps, yeah? Um, so, and also I, I used to, and still do, um, have a relationship with the writing process that is quite divine. I experience uh, a merging of um, self and no self. Yeah. Um, and so it was just a natural proclivity to write. And so I wrote that book. Well, I wrote a few chapters and I happened, I mean, publishing is incredibly difficult in the mainstream. And in those days, it wasn't the days of self-publishing. You had to go through a mainstream publisher. But there was something about that process that also appealed to me. Having been an old academic, I like the publication process. I like going to, I like writing a proposal and having it reviewed. And there's something about that. It's just my, my conditioning on the one level. That's what I've learned. Um, uh, and I happened to meet uh, an agent, uh, a publishing agent, and she read the first two or three chapters and she said, wow, this has got something. I was like, oh, okay. She said, it's got a lot of presence in it. And it reminded her of the power of now. I don't think it's anywhere near the power of now, <laughs> really, but she, it reminded her of that. And she felt she could give it to a publisher and get a good response, and she did. She gave it to Watkins, which is a, as you know, a well-established, um, respectful, uh, respected rather, <laughs> publisher of spiritual books, and they loved it. And I think my publisher saw non-duality in it, but I didn't, I didn't even know what non-duality was. So he published it, and that was it. That's how that came about. Now, I, I, that was it. There, there was nothing else. I wasn't speaking in public. That was just a publication. Um, there was a little bit of interest in it as it got published and released and circulated in some ways by the new thought movement in America, um, uh, sort of the Neil Donald Walsh kind of approach. Um, his books were very God-based in, in that way. Um, and so it, it kind of circulated a little bit. I never felt it was complete. I don't, yeah, but that's what happened. Um, that's it. <laughs> Not much happened after that. I think I did uh, get invited to speak at a few... Um, in England, in various places. Um, I think I traveled up to Manchester and somewhere else. Um, these groups, I don't, I don't know what they're called now. They're, they're sort of uh, informal groups that gather to speak about various topics. They're speakers groups. Um, 
uh, not big speakers, just, you know, individuals who have something to say or have written a book or, or something. And you kind of practice your speaking skills. And I got invited to some of these and to speak about the book. And it was very challenging. I mean, for a start, maybe that's when my self-consciousness kind of remnants of it still came up my you know and that kind of thing but that was all part of a sort of purification again of just being seen being exposed I mean this was just only a few times and I realized quickly that speaking about it wasn't wasn't right yeah you know, I'm not speaking about anything and so I stopped and went through this long period of not knowing, not doing, and a deepening naturally, gradually of this uh, abiding presence throughout it all. And that took 12 years. <laughs> That's the 12 year period. Um, uh, at some point in, uh, yeah, towards the end of that 12 year period, when I had really let go of any, anything, everything, but just being here, <laughs> yeah, in the not knowing and meeting life in the not knowing, there was this impulse and it was really tiny and it said, speak, speak, not about it, but from it. And that meant no notes, no book, no concepts, not about what I had written, not about what I had experienced, but speak from it. And that started a whole new trajectory where I started to speak from silence. And it was like a little shoot. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't have an idea of where it was going, either within the speaking of it or in the longer movement of it the trajectory of it it definitely wasn't any idea that I was going to be a spiritual teacher I just spoke from that silence and that's when it started to sort of reveal itself through the spoken word and at that point I felt drawn not to write a book for any particular reason but to actually write from it because I started to understand, if you like, that whole process of awakening and what happens after awakening. And in speaking with people, individuals, the groups were very small, but I still had the experience of listening to their own spiritual paths and their questions. And I'd never, I'd never had that before. So now I was interacting with other spiritual seekers and listening and either reflecting back or exploring with them. And I could see all the nuances of the spiritual seekers mind or process. And I started to write about it. And that became my book embodied enlightenment, which did get published in America. And so that, yeah, that started the teaching, really. Where does change your life, change your world fit in? 
this narrative? Actually, not, not nowhere. <laughs> um, that book came about as a follow on to how to find God in everything, because in how to find God in everything, um, I think I just mentioned there was a little bit of interest in the new thought realm. Um, somehow it got the attention of somebody who at the time was developing the online courses for Neil Donald Walsh. Um, and this was in the early days of relatively early days of the internet and e-courses were all sort of just about the rage or coming about. And he had this way of creating these e-courses with videos and spoken word and audio downloads and uh, all sorts of things. And he said, he reached out to me and said, Hey, I could, I could really do a good course on your book, how to find God in everything using each chapter as a, as a teaching module. And we did, he created me a beautiful sort of video audio package and online package. Um, and the 10, uh, change your life, change your world was actually based on that course because the co course he, he wanted me to have lessons 10 lessons or 12 lessons that took some of the if you like pointers or whatever I was writing about in how to find God in everything and made them more like teaching modules with some exercises some invitations some contemplations some practices Mm, I was a little bit mm, unsure, yeah, because I wasn't teaching it, it teaching, and I, I I didn't want to get into practices, but it seemed to form the basis of a nice little book. And Watkins were quite interested in it, and we went with it. Um, probably in retrospect, I I I mean it's wonderful. I, I I've had good feedback. Some people find it very valuable. It's very practical. But in retrospect, I, I don't think it really has the fragrance or the direction that, uh, that has emerged since then. It's a little side, side dish. <laughs> in this 12-year peri uh, period, what were you doing for work for income and so on that's the first question and the second question is uh, were you still meditating were you going to spiritual gatherings sort of satsangs or things like this were you still reading previously voraciously read all sorts of um, you know books on the on this on these sorts of subjects were you still reading things so yeah i'm curious about that 12-year period in those respects <laughs> In that 12 year period, I had no work apart from writing Change Your Life, Change Your World. That was written in that period. I would call that work. I did, I did spend months writing that, six months writing that. Um, I was not teaching. I was not going to satsang because I don't think there were any at that time. And if there were, they were so hidden that I had no knowledge of them. At that time, I was living, 
I'd left London and was living in the uh, initially at first in Somerset and then down on the south coast in East Sussex because I, I, I two reasons one was I could no longer afford to live in London the other is by then I was living with Cavi and a one-bedroom apartment was just too small for the two of us um especially because I was still trying to write and he he was a musician so he had equipment and uh, was creating albums and you know in one bedroom that's not really possible um and also he was very ill so he developed a serious case of ulcerative colitis within the first year of us being together and London didn't feel right to him so he said let's go try the countryside and off we went I'd never lived in the countryside um and essentially, during that period, we took care of Cavi, who was pretty sick, yeah, but not uh, wanting neither of us the the, the conventional uh, model, medical model. So we were on a deep healing path, um, alternative of our own uh, discovery, if you like. Of course, we had no money, so what was being done had to be done totally naturally and without any financial input um, so we were taking care of Cavi were, we were uh, living a very 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 call it frugal call it ascetic life it actually suited us it suited us because everything fell away apart from having some shelter, which was not in any way grandiose. It was very basic and actually very, um, <laughs> it was cold. <laughs> it was, yeah, and so on and so on. So it was a bit like a barn, um, but, you know, it was a home. Um, uh, but everything fell away, everything. I'd written the two books unless you go out and promote and push a book and I don't know, develop an audience and speak about a book. It's just a book that goes out into the ether and may sell a few copies or not. Um, I did have some clients I was working with in London because I was a rebirther as well. So that was part of what I did. Not a great practice of any great, you know, size or anything, but I had a few clients a week that I worked with. As soon as we moved to Somerset, that completely fell away. We're in the middle of nowhere. Nobody knew who we were or there was no way of, of having any kind of interaction. So everything fell away, everything pretty much. When I look back on it, it's like, well, what did we do all day? Um, I don't know. It was very simple. It was very quiet. I think I still did a lot of writing in some ways and I was learning to use the internet a bit more and it was just a very simple, empty life, um, kind of waiting for something. Uh, and then we moved to East Sussex, uh, down, down on the south coast, and Cavi was getting better. Um, and I had that impetus to speak from silence, but none of it made any money. We lived very, very, very frugally, yeah? When you're vegetarian, which we were then, <laughs> we sort of still are, but a little more flexibility. But uh, 
and you don't have any social life and you don't have any family life and you don't have any children and you don't have any pets and you don't go anywhere, you don't travel anywhere and you don't see anyone and you don't go out for meals and you don't do entertainment. Well, on the one hand, there's a great silence, <laughs> an actual silence and simplicity, uh, but also you don't need many resources. That's what happened <laughs> until we came to America, which is a whole different ball game. <laughs> but, you know, by then there was a natural movement into the world rather than, yeah. Right. When did you become aware of this idea of non-duality? Well, it was around the time that I started speaking from silence. What happened down in East Sussex was that I, I, I just felt compelled. Um, and so I rented a room out at the, oh, it was actually the library room at the friend's meeting house. And it was very cheap rent. And somehow, again, we didn't know anybody, but I, I had uh, maybe a leftover of two people I worked with for rebirthing and one of them happened to be a rebirther himself he was also a course in miracles student and facilitator just pure synchronicity and so when I said I was going to be speaking I, I called it awakened presence speaking from awakened presence in yeah and I, I didn't know anybody and I didn't know who would come and maybe I would sit there all by myself he said oh I'll come and he came with three of his Course in Miracles students, and that was my first group. Um, and it was around that time, like a few months later, that, um, again, a very synchronous situation, actually. Kavi was, um, uh, had a very small business with superfoods. A tiny, just for friends, he would bring in high quality superfoods like goji berries and things like that, uh, maca powder, and package them and sell them to friends who didn't have access. It was again in the early days of the superfood um, trend in, <laughs> in England. And uh, it kept us in good supply of superfoods. So that was good, good for us. It never made any money, but he was uh, invited to present these superfoods at a stall in the local town hall. And one of the people that came, her sister was involved in non-duality. She was actually involved with SAND, yeah, the SAND conference in America. So when they went to America, they were part of that kind of circle, if you like. And when the sister spoke to Kavi and asked what I did, because they were talking about just, just friendly talking, she said, oh, you must, she must meet my sister. So I did. And she had a platform for non-dual teachers um, to put their events on and that side of thing. And as soon as we spoke and she said non-duality, I knew that was it. 
I totally understood then. It's like it, it sort of fell into place. And I thought, ah, oh, that's what it is. If it had a name, which I don't like names and labels, but if it had a sort of name in the world, that's what it would be. And not that that mattered or changed anything, but it just sort of found its groove. Um, no, I didn't go around saying I was a non-duality teacher. It just sort of filtered in somehow and um, brought me into contact with uh, non-dual groups that invited me to to speak there. <laughs> right. How did you come to America? I'm guessing that's the next thing that happens. How did you get? How did you go to America? And now I suppose we're coming closer and closer to the present present moment, right? In terms yes. of biography. Mm -hmm. Yes. Again, uh, you know, after after many years of really nothing, nothing happening. Yeah. This simplicity, this emptiness, this asceticness in on all levels, uh, falling away, which which was what wonderful. It was like being in the cave, being in the cave in the modern world. And then, you know, gradually this little bit of teaching here and there, but, you know, there, again, there was no great big thing about it. Um, yeah, I, I, because of my connection with this uh, lady that was uh, offering a non-duality platform, I got introduced to, to Bat Gap. And well, actually it was through somebody else. Uh, somebody came to one of my groups and she was actually a student of Muji. And we had a beautiful conversation outside of the, the group setting. And she was like, you really should speak to <laughs> Bat Gap, <laughs> Buddha at the gas pump. And yeah, so Bat Gap and science and non-duality. And I was like, oh, okay. And it, I did. I, 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 I did speak on Back Gap. I had an interview. Um, again, I was very new to the whole non-duality scene and, and, and didn't necessarily speak their language, although it was the same experience. Um, and then around that time, my mother died. Um, <clears throat> my mother was in another country, but she died and it released... Uh, to put it in a nutshell, a lot of energy, if you like, that had been trapped in that relationship. Um, and somehow that, uh, again, without any uh, agenda or, 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 you know, it just sort of came at us. It came at both Cavi and me. It's like, what are we doing here? What are we doing in England? It just didn't feel right. It's like, this isn't home even though it had been home for over 50 years. He's English, you know, totally. I, I'm, I'm not really, but I'm, I was brought up as English. Um, something in us just knew that it wasn't our home. <laughs> We'd somehow got trapped there and that something new wanted to birth itself, if you like. And 
somehow, I don't know, it was connected on an energetic level, not being in the dynamic with my mother anymore meant that I could fully give myself to whatever was being called for in the world. And synchronistically, opportunities came. My book was published in America. I got invited to Sand. Somehow there was a little bit of uh, financial resource to get us to America, at least on the flight. And over a couple of years, the realization that let's go. But let's go was like a complete jump into the unknown. And of course, there was a bit of a process with the visa and residency and all that. Um, and again, miraculously, or not so miraculously, um, that was successful. And we went and it was a leap into the unknown, totally. No resources, no like, oh, yes, you can have a speaking engagement here. We didn't actually know. The only thing I knew was sand, <laughs> the conference once a year. Um, that's not enough. Um, but, you know, life took a very different turn. Again, it wasn't like any super <laughs> stardom. It was, it, was, it was work. It just started to come. You know, I don't mean work in the conventional sense, but I started to be in the world and interact with people and interact from a def very different place and be received, if you like, and be challenged and constantly living in the unknown. I mean, like, like the umbilical cord with our past was cut, totally. New culture, new psychology, if you like, a different psyche, new interactions, uh, we were lucky to be hosted for a few years by somebody in their home because we had no capacity to, to rent a home at that point. Um, and so life went on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so very interesting. And what year was that, that you moved to America? The end of 2016. Mm -hmm. You talked a bit about, you were talking about the scene right the non-duality scene and certainly especially at that time wow yeah that was really a scene so it's a scene with its own way of doing things its own um famous figures and, and teachers and tribes and this sort of thing mm. so i'm curious you know what what did you make of that what your encounter with um through portals like sand and even the um, non-duality circuit that you start you were you were beginning to do a little bit of that in the uk as yes. you said um, what was it like to, encountering these other teachers, um, uh, people, you know, the, the, the whole way it's done? It's a very specific format. Yeah. So I'm curious, what, what, what was that like? Well, I met everything with such freshness. I met everything with such... Goodness. I, the goodness in everything. I, I, I didn't come with any preconceived ideas or, or any, you know, sort of looking at judging things or dividing things. I was totally unaware of the non-dual scene. I landed in the Bay Area of all places because that's where <clears throat> sand was and then that's where we 
were invited to, to, to live with somebody who graciously did that. It was supposed to be three months. It ended up being three years. Um, so we kind of overstayed our welcome. But um, maybe not. It, it was a beautiful relationship. We had a beautiful friendship. Um, but throughout that period, everything was new. Everything was fresh. It was only over that time that I started to sense that there was actually an, a, a scene, almost a non-dual bubble, um, that did have certain figures that were known and those that were lesser known and those that were trying to be known. And that was quite an eye-opener. And it was like, well, that's the world. Everything has a, a, a scene, if you like. Everything is a... <clears throat> club of some sort. I wasn't interested in that. And yet I seemed to circulate within it, sometimes outside of it, because I got invited to other parts of America that were not part of the non-dual scene. <laughs> it's still spiritual, obviously, but, uh, you know, I ended up on the East Coast and it was much more Buddhist and uh, other places as well. <clears throat> so I was much more eclectic in, or the invitations I received were much more eclectic. But there was a time initially where I thought, wow, I'm getting trapped by this and I don't want to be trapped by this. And I was like, well, how, the, how did I ever become this? Is, is this? is this what I'm doing now? You know, I found myself in a very specific role and I experienced many projections, either projections of elevation uh, or, or, or challenges that, you know, who the hell are you kind of thing. And that was challenging, but something in me could not, if you like, deny what was wanting to move. It just felt like an expression or movement of love in the world, yeah, or truth in the world. And so it just continued to 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 take up invitations because that's really what it was and again over time that's been refined so where there was an absolute yes to every single invitation that came up I if invitations come now I'm much more discerning yeah again that's healthy boundaries <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah very interesting indeed you know, this has been so fascinating. There is one, and we've been talking for a long time, so um, I don't want to keep you here forever and ever. But uh, there is uh, one topic that I'd love to pivot to, if we could, before we finish this uh, this installment, which is the feminine face of awakening. Mm -hmm. uh, yes. So you talk about this, the feminine face of awakening, and you contrast that with, um, you've used the words, patriarchal view of enlightenment. I'd like to know what you mean by that, and also new age ascendance. So I'm one, and wondering if you could talk about these things. What's the patriarchal view of enlightenment? And what's new age ascendance? And what's the feminine face of awakening? So I'll have to just preempt that by saying I really don't talk much about the feminine. Uh, face or side or approach to awakening. And I don't really like 
any division between feminine and masculine because that's not really how I experience it. However, I did write about it and there is something in it that is worth um, exploring uh, or at least touching on. Um, part of that was, was actually in response to what people saw or what people experienced through what I was offering. Um, I mean, one is on a very basic level, I am a woman. <laughs> there are, of course, other female teachers around and increasingly so, perhaps not so much in the early days. Um, although there are, of course. Um, usually those female teachers do not, uh, if I may use the term, rise into great visibility or prominence. There is still uh, a, a sort of unconscious, it's not premeditated in any way, but there is still a, 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 a sort of, let's call it a boys club, <laughs> which I think is endemic in all fields of society, including the spiritual world. Traditionally, and I mean traditionally, teachers have been men. I'm not talking about the saints, yeah? There have been female saints. I mean, teachers, teachers that speak, that can, you know, uh, have clarity and directness. Um, traditionally, that's male. Traditional teachings. And again, this is a generalization. It's not all true, but, you know, Buddhist teachings and... Advaitic teachings and so on and so on are mostly male teachers that we know about. Um, so that's one thing, but it's not really about male or female and, and all of that. It's more about those two things. One is the, the, the feminine, if, if I'm going to speak about a feminine aspect or frequency to, to awakening, it's it's only to contrast it with what has become a non-dual, if we, let's just look at that, perspective, which tends to be a realization of the mind. Yeah, clear seeing of the mind, illuminated mind, um, but it doesn't often or always descend all the way into the human lived ordinary experience, which is where it has to go through the heart into the vulnerability, which is always a surprise, it seems. Yeah, because the, 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 the spiritual ego, which very often there is a remnant of that, takes ownership of awakening or enlightenment, and then it becomes just that. And I'm speaking about something else, which is a, it's, it's an ongoing surrender that, 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 that goes deep into all the defended and vulnerable places, which is on the human level. And that's what I speak about, the embodiment. And I think, of course, there are male teachers who, who are that. And, and I see that, contemporary teachers and traditional teachers. But there's a tendency for that to be on this level. Um, so that's one thing. The other thing is the 
patriarchy that is and sort of embedded in all aspects of society, including spirituality, which is a top-down yeah, kind of thing, which, again, is part of religion, is part of spiritual traditions, where... Of course, that you know, a teacher has value. I mean, I'm a teacher myself. If if you you know, I'm, I'm in that role. But what happens is that is the authority is given to that, and then we have all sorts of problems. Yeah, not wanting to, to break away from the group, the kind of scandals, the power things the, that go on. That's the extreme, but it happens on a more subtle level. So unless a teacher can reflect back authority to the individual, then it's still playing in that patriarchal realm, or there's sets of principles or teachings that have to be learnt or followed or ways of behaving or ways of being or ways of living. Yeah. Again, this is all a sort of patriarchal trickle down. And I, I just think that that's over. It's done. It doesn't serve anything. Um, so I, I think that's what I mean by by feminine, and I think that feminine is perhaps coming um, more alive or awake in 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 men and women now. So it's not it's really not about men or women, and it's not about feminism or anything like that. But it's about uh, the, sort of an inner marriage, really. Again, yeah, of presence and openness yeah one's masculine one's feminine but ultimately they're not yeah it's beyond masculine and feminine so it gets tricky to talk about it on that level hmm. <laughs> now i'm i'm curious this is a ps um did you uh, encounter this boys club when you were uh, you know you came to america and you're sort of beginning to accept these invitations did you encounter it i would say it's subtle I would say it's subtle. I, 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 I don't really have a definitive answer on whether there is a boys club or there isn't. I think there's a tendency for the male speaker, the male teacher, the male anything to naturally have... I, when I say naturally, I don't mean naturally because it's not natural, but to automatically have more recognition and be given more authority because that is how it's always been as far as we know. Yeah, men are given a place of authority, of recognition, of knowing, yeah, uh, uh, women are secondary. And of course, not so much in the West, but it has been part of our history. And the way that women have mostly come to be equal with men is by either fighting for their rights, shouting for their rights, or emulating men. That's called the feminist movement. Yeah. Now, of course, that's changing now, but I think it's as a woman, 
and I really am not a feminist and have never been interested in that. In fact, I sort of, if anything, I identified more with the masculine when I was younger, not in form, but in mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, but I, I, I sense as, as a female body that I, I sense the suppression of the female it's secondary or the female way or the way of surrender or the way of openness or the way of the heart. And I'm not talking about flouncy, flouncy, new agey, nicey, nicey, girly, girly. Yeah, <laughs> dancey, dancey. I'm talking about that inner, inner vulnerability, openness and undefendedness, receptivity that is a natural uh, way of, of woman unless she tries to also be like a man and then she can succeed in the world and have that recognition. But I'm talking about something different. And, and because my mother has come from a culture of the suppressed female, I, maybe I'm more in touch with that. Yeah. So I think, and also because as a, as gr growing up, I tried to be uh I didn't try to be a boy physically. <laughs> I wasn't a tomboy or anything like that. But I think I tried to be a man in a masculine in mind to succeed intellectually, to succeed in terms of recognition, to succeed in terms of academia, to get the approval of my father because women were wives and mothers and so on and so on. And uh, I think that's what I'm referring to. So it's subtle. It's definitely subtle. But it, I, th I think it is sort of still there. <laughs> well, once again, this has been so fascinating. You know, I think there may be a third one. Some <laughs> months, you know, uh, who knows? Um, but, uh, uh, you know, this has been so great. Uh, thank you very much. Um, is there anything left to say? Do you have any closing remarks or anything that's still is on your mind that you'd like to like to share or offer? It doesn't have to be. No, I, like I said, my mind is empty unless it's uh, <laughs> unless it's got a job to do. So <laughs> um, I don't really have anything. No, I, I think that's. Uh, I'm sure we. I, I'm sure we went to a lot of uh, places that we wouldn't normally go to. Um, and there's nothing. Yeah, it's it's. There's nothing to to hold back if you like. Um, it's all part of the the rich tapestry of of a life that is experienced as you know not my own it, it has its own that's all I will say I, I experience all of this as a river that's flowing through me called life that actually I have no control over yeah uh, everything that's happened, I have had no control over. And that's not being a victim. That's just, uh, I guess that's non-doership. I just see it happening. It, yeah, it's just happening. I, I had no idea any of this was happening. One could, could call it destiny. Yeah, our destiny isn't our own, of our own making. We have a choice how to respond to it. And that makes all the difference. We can respond with rejection and resentment and some kind of grievance or we can respond with a great relaxation and soft yes and all of that and it makes the difference but the actual details 
are totally not in my control. <laughs> so I have no idea where it's going to go and what will unfold. <laughs> Amodama, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.